We're going to read from uh, Malachi chapter 3 and verses 6 to 12. And uh, today and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, what it is to uh, give to God, what it is to understand how we should respond to what the Bible instructs and um, uh, in the context of what we're doing next Sunday morning, we'll be looking at vision and staff and uh, new posts that are coming on stream and so forth, as we hope they will. Uh, anyway, let's, let's read Malachi 3, uh, beginning at verse 6. And this is a section entitled, Robbing God. Hear God's word. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would enable us to have open eyes and ears and hearts and minds and wills that we may understand what you would say to us this morning and respond to it in Jesus' name. Amen. I told this story before, but I'd like to repeat it. Two friends were sailing in a yacht in the uh, Caribbean, and they became shipwrecked. Uh, And both men escaped with no possessions apart from the clothes they were in and landed on a desert island. One man began to panic, and he shouted out a bit like uh, uh, Dad's army character phrase, we're all doomed, we're going to die, this is terrible, there's no food, there's no water, we're going to die, nobody's going to rescue us. The other guy, however, sat uh, down with his uh, back against a palm tree and his hands behind his head and a big smile on his face. And his friend found that very irritating. Don't you understand? He said, we're all doomed. We're going to die, the two of us. Uh, and he said, no, you don't need to worry. And his friend said, why? Well, said the guy sitting down against the palm tree, you've got to understand that I earn 100000 a month and I tithe 10% to the church. His friend said, what good is that going to do us? We're on a desert island. We're doomed. We're going to die. What does it matter what you give? The other guy said, don't worry. My pastor will find me. (laughs) So, who knows? But sometimes when we come to speak about money, clergy can feel awkward because it appears they benefit from encouraging people to give more. Sometimes we feel awkward because, well, there was an old 
Presbyterian elder, I don't know whether any of you remember him, T.S. Mooney from Londonderry. He was a banker, heavily involved in Christian work all through his life. Uh, and he coined an awful lot of little phrases that people used to call Mooneyisms. And one of his Mooneyisms was, the last part of a man to be converted is his wallet. And as a bank manager, perhaps he knew more about that than most. I saw a report uh, of a charismatic church in England where the media got hold of what they were doing and they, uh, they were saying how awful it was that the leadership insisted that members give 10% of their income to the church and they made it out to be like a cult that pressurized people into giving away their hard-earned cash. Maybe that's one of the reasons why with that perceived pressure Presbyterians issue what are called, for a very good reason, free will offering envelopes. But what I want us to think together this morning for a while is around the subject of tithing, giving a a bit of our income to God, and where did that principle come from? Here's a definition I found. Tithing means the tenth part of agricultural produce or personal income set apart as an offering to God or for works of mercy for the support of the church priesthood, or the like. It's a kind of definition that uh, if you Googled tithing, you might find on the internet. But the origins of giving to God are perhaps obscured in the midst of time. And one of the sobering things that we might want to note is that the very first murder that was recorded in human society had to do with what was given to God and God's acceptance of one and rejection of the other. Of course, the issue uh, way back in Genesis 4 was one of jealousy. Let's just uh, look at what happened in the story of Cain and Abel. We read Genesis 4, starting at the second part of verse 2 through to uh, verse 6 or 7. Now, Abel kept flocks, and uh, Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. I find it fascinating. We could preach several sermons on those verses all together. But if you note, it says that Cain brought some of the first fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. There's an element almost suggested in the text of casualness. And yet for Abel, uh, he brought the fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. Now, there's no recorded between Genesis 1, 2, and 3 set of instructions as to what people are to give to God and so forth. But obviously, by the time of Cain and Abel and their families, it had become an established practice that some of the first fruits of the land or of the produce or the animals would be given to God as an act of worship. And what's really significant about Genesis 4 is that 
It wasn't the things that were brought as an offering that pleased or displeased God, but the attitude of the heart. It was as if, on the one hand, Abel brought the very best that he could give to God, and on the other hand, Cain had an anything-will-do kind of attitude. And that was the issue, and that was the problem uh, way back in Genesis chapter 4. But the concept of giving a tithe of 10% that was mentioned in that uh, 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 definition really, I suppose, comes from what happened in Genesis 14 and verses 18 to 20. You may remember, and this is before Abram's name was changed to Abraham, but I'll refer to him, if I may, as Abraham. Uh, And Abraham goes out to rescue his nephew who'd been taken captive along with his family and flocks and herds and so forth. Uh, And uh, Abraham gets an awful lot of booty, a lot of loot, uh, and the answer to the question is, what might he do with that? And we have a very mysterious figure that meets him, Uh, and uh, this figure is Melchizedek, and we read Genesis 14 uh, and 18 to 20. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Who was Melchizedek? He is without introduction or any other word of who he was or what happened after this meeting with Abram. He is a man who held the office of king and priest, two offices that were never held together in one person, the only person who could claim that office being united in his personhood was Jesus Christ, king of kings, lord of lords, and the high priest, the great high priest of his people. And so some people see this Melchizedek mysterious figure who appears out of the blue in the Old Testament and to whom Abram somehow gives a tenth of his produce. They see this Melchizedek as a prefigurement, if you like, of Christ in the Old Testament. Maybe someone directly from God who meets Abram and Abram says, Lord, to you I must give one-tenth of everything that I have. And so, again, we could preach lots of sermons about this mysterious figure of Melchizedek uh, and so forth. But then let's just move on a little bit to Genesis 28 and 20 uh, to 22. Here we have Jacob, Abram's descent, coming to an experience of meeting God at Bethel, where there's this amazing dream, and and his whole life is turned around, and he, he wants to give God his place and be honoring to God. And so we read in Genesis 28 and verse 20 to 22, Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, that I may return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. But of all you give me, I will give you a tenth. So somehow in the Old Testament, there's this principle of tithing, of giving to God a tenth of everything, and giving to God that as the first fruits of our labor and our work, if you like. 
the practice of tithing developed in the Old Testament and every Jew was, in fact, expected to give three kinds of tithes. There were tithes to the Levites. They were the priests who organized the work of the temple. There were tithes to the temple itself for the use of the temple, for the staging of the great feasts of the Jewish faith, the great uh, acts of worship. And there were tithes to the poor. And it seems that the Jews began this practice that they would bring their tithes to God and divide it between the Levites, the temple, and the poor. I'll come back later to what I see as parallels to this, but we should also note that the tithe of 10% was seen as a minimum amount, a requirement laid upon the Jews who were at times instructed to give other compulsory gifts and at other times some voluntary ones. Indeed, it's estimated that at the time of Jesus that really committed Jews were giving at least 25% of their income to the temple. But in the Old Testament, when the practice of tithing was neglected, there seems to have been a parallel spiritual backsliding of the people. And when tithing was reinstituted, it often followed as a result of spiritual renewal in the people's lives. And I think that's the sense of what we get in the verses that we read earlier on in Malachi. God says to his people, turn to me and I will return to you. And the people say, but how can we return to you? And God says, well, will you rob God? How are we robbing God in tithes and offerings? And we need to maybe try and understand what that means. So the first thing I think I want us to learn is this, don't rob God. Let's read those, the verses again, 8 to 10. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse and the whole nation of you because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And then God goes on to say, test me in this to see that if you do this, will I not bless you? It seems the problem was not that the people were giving nothing, but they were not giving as much as they should have, nor were they they displaying the right attitude in worship to the Lord. In fact, if you go back to Malachi chapter 1, you discover that part of the issue was that people were bringing what they might have called blemished sacrifices. They were bringing the scrawniest, weakest animals instead of the pick of their flocks. They were bringing perhaps food and grain that was going off rather than the freshly cut and and vigorous fruit and grain. And the priests were complicit in turning a blind eye and not teaching people the truth. And the reason tithes were to be brought into the temple was obviously so that the priests could live. The priestly Levites, unlike other tribes, were not allowed to own land. And therefore they depended upon the people to bring their tithes and offerings in order that the priestly tribe of Levites could live. Tithes doubtless also went to the upkeep of the temple and also were supposed to be for the benefit of the poor. These, I think, are paralleled in the church today. Tithing is a huge issue. It's an unpopular issue for clergy to preach about, an unpopular issue for many congregations to think about. And many of us give through the free will offering scheme of the church, and many of us in recent years have begun giving by standing order, which is great. It helps the finance team no end to have standing orders. But I wonder 
Do we regularly review our standing orders and our giving through envelopes to the church? And young people, if I may say so, if you don't mind me saying so, I quite often see a lot of young people not putting anything in our offering plates. And it may be that, like me, you give by standing order, but I'm really surprised that so many people have standing orders if we don't give anything in our plates. Maybe some of us have to consider that part of my discipleship is learning to give to God and to make that giving systematic in a way we'll come to in a moment. I was very grateful that my parents never gave me collection for church. I heard many parents would say to their children, oh, I need to give you your collection, so they put collection in the plate. What my parents did when I was young was, I think, very good. When I was just on a small amount of pocket money, they said, Ken, you need to decide how much of that you're giving to God. Uh, And uh, maybe my pocket money wasn't very great, but I decided in my head I would give a certain amount to God. Uh, And they instilled in me as a young child of seven or eight or nine the idea of giving part of my income to God. And that has always been a part of my life. So maybe parents, you and I, need to teach our children or our grandchildren, not when they're going to church, here's your collection, but here's your pocket money. What out of that do you think you'd like to pray about and decide to give to God? Surveys would indicate that many of our younger people don't see maintenance of buildings and home ministry even as being where it's at in terms of faith. We're much more inclined in the younger generation to support anti-human trafficking movements and anti-slavery movements and uh, work in the two-thirds world. That's really where it's at. Well, for young and old, there may be a word from the Lord in this ancient text that says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Don't rob God, but bring everything that should be given to God to him. And so we see parallels coming out of what the Jews did in their tithing. There were clergy and church staff that need support for mission at home, as do evangelists and other parachurch workers. In the Old Testament, the temple required building and required repair, as do church buildings today. It's not unbiblical. In fact, it is very biblical to give to our building fund and to give to our repairs and renovation fund. And the poor need to be cared for. All the way throughout the Old Testament, there are so many instructions from God to care for the poor. We cannot neglect the poor. And so we support Tear Fund, and we support uh, the Chu Connected Church Project in Cambodia, teaching and training young people how to avoid falling foul of the human traffickers and doing so much to help them find a new life and new hope for the future. But some say the concept of tithing is an Old Testament construct laid down by the law, and to insist upon it today is a legalism that we can do without. Well, actually, I think the concept in the New Testament is a more radical uh, entity, and let me explain why. In the Old Testament, the law required that one day in seven be kept holy to the Lord. Now in the New Testament era, we do still see the need to keep Sunday special, but we also regard every day as sacred. We are to worship God not just for an hour or two in church on the Sunday, but as 24-7 disciples of Jesus Christ, honoring him at work, in the marketplace, 
in the home as well as in the church. So every day is sacred to the Lord. The law required that one tribe in 12 were to act as priests of the old covenant, but now in the new covenant, all of us are a royal priesthood, says Peter in 1 Peter 1 and 9. A royal priesthood to declare the praises of God who called us out of darkness into light. So we are to share with one another what God has given us for the mission of God's people and the mission of God's church. The Old Testament law required at least 10% of people's produce, flocks, and income be given to the the Lord. But under the new covenant, we understand that everything we have belongs to God. Our lives first given to him and then asking God, what can we keep or should we keep for ourselves? Tithing should be a constant conversation between us and the Lord saying, what do you require of me? How can I support your work, Lord? In fact, I guess we need that conversation with the Lord on a very systematic and regular basis. Of course, part of the instructions found in the verse that some of you will know from the free will offering envelopes, uh, Paul's instructions in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16 and 2. On the first day of every week, uh, and in today's generation we might say in the first day of the month, each one of you should set aside a sum of money, and listen to what he says, in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come no collections will have to be made. There were uh, monies given to help the poor who were suffering through famine, and Paul was going around churches collecting money and bringing it and distributing it to the poor. The principle, the first day of every week or the first day of every month, we might say today, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. That's why a percentage is actually a good idea. Maybe 10%, maybe 12%, or 15%, whatever. But if you decide upon a percentage and your income goes up, then your giving to the Lord should also go up if you keep to that percentage. Or maybe as your income goes up, you can give a bigger percentage. But that example leads Paul to enshrine another important principle, just a a verse or two, uh, uh, well, over in 2 Corinthians uh, 8 and 5. Uh, And then I want to to read a verse uh, beyond that. And this is Paul commending Christians in Macedonia. You need to know about Macedonian Christians uh, a couple of things. One is that they were extremely poor. They were the lowest of the low. They were the, the people who were so poor that if the church had been doing what it should have been doing, they should have been sending relief to the Macedonians. And the second thing you need to know about them is that they were so generous to the Lord that out of their poverty, they gave and gave and gave. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 5, this is what Paul says in encouraging generosity amongst everybody. And they, the Macedonian Christians, they did not do as we expected. How could you expect poor people to give anything? But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. He said, here are people so sold out to God that even out of their poverty, they contributed significantly and meaningfully. But then there's a wee verse sometimes people miss just a little bit further on in 2 Corinthians 8, and it's verse 12. This is what Paul says, for as the willingness is there, 
The gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. In other words, Paul is saying this is a free will thing. God is not expecting that if you have no money in the bank that you give 5,000 pounds to the church next week. But perhaps if we have 500,000 pounds in the bank, then we need to look at how we give to God and what we have to give to God, or even 5,000 pounds. But Paul says the gift is acceptable according to what one has. So there's got to be a proportionality and a sensibleness about what we give to God. Now, there's lots of different things that I could say this morning. We could go on to look at verses 10 to 12 in Malachi about how uh, we need to trust God to provide, but we're not going to do that. I just want to bring this to a conclusion by saying a couple of things. We cannot say that the New Testament specifically commands tithing in the concept of 10%. So we're now under the covenant of God's grace. But what the New Testament does suggest to me, I think, is a higher standard, that all that we have belongs to God. Indeed, we are taught that our giving to God's work should be a number of things. I want to leave you with these thoughts. Uh, Our giving should be voluntary. It's something we need to pray about. It's something we need to come to God and say, this is what I earn, this is what I have. How would you want me to distribute that? And, of course, the Bible is full of practical things that if we don't care for ourselves and our families first, then we're worse than pagans. So you've got to be sensible, but pray about it as to be voluntary. It's to be systematic, that our giving should be monthly, if not weekly. It should be sacrificial all the way through the Old Testament and the New. You have this encouragement, if God is God and you are connected to him Do not give to God that which costs you nothing. If we don't miss what we give, we may not be giving enough. It should be sacrificial. It should be purposeful. Think about what you're giving to. Pray about those organizations that you should support. I find in my position that many organizations write to me asking for money, and I could be giving to maybe 30, 40 organizations. But what I have done is I've said to the Lord, what are the ones that are my priority under you to support? And so the majority of my support goes to this church, and then there are some other organizations or mission groups that we as a family support. But it's something that's purposeful. Think about what you're giving to. It's something that should also be secret. When I went to minister in Bry Albany in Stewartstown, there was a horrendous practice They published a directory of all the uh, 30-plus congregations in the presbytery and all the amounts of everybody's giving by name. So in Stewartstown, you could find out what Uncle John in Macrafelt was giving and what uh, Auntie Mary in Dungannon was giving. Uh, And it was great old fun. People were able to say, oh, look at so-and-so. He's a big farmer and he only gives 50 pounds a year to the church. Dreadful. When I came to Orangefield... Uh, the practice had begun that some could request, if necessary, that we would put into the uh, annual report anonymous if you didn't want your givings recorded. Uh, and after I came to Orangeville, we decided that we would not record beside people's uh, uh, names amounts of money given. 
We have to be able to account for it. So that's why you have a, a free will offering number so that you can check the annual report to make sure that what you think you've given is what we claim you have given. But I'm delighted that in a church, none of us really knows what the other is giving. And I think our giving should be secret. And I think it should finally be humble. We're not buying anything by giving. We can't buy our salvation by giving generously to the church. We can't buy influence by our giving. And that's another reason why I'm glad that we do not indicate who gives the different amounts because that means those people do not have influence in Orangeville and say, I give so much to the church, I demand that we do this or do that. It should be humble. And I believe that it should be humble from the point of view of saying we don't deserve credit for the amount that we give. Don't deserve a plaque in the front of the church saying Ken McBride gave X pounds to Orangefield. Voluntary, systematic, sacrificial, purposeful, secret, and humble. And the Apostle Paul calls us to excel in what he calls the grace of giving, and he suggests that our deepest motive for giving is gratitude for the inexpressible gift of Jesus Christ, God's Son. And I believe that when the world, and I apologize to the visitors for speaking about money this morning, but I believe that when the world outside looks at the church and sees a people who give themselves first to the Lord in that relationship and that desire to love Him and to serve Him as disciples of Christ, and then sees a people who give generously, indeed sacrificially, of all our ties to the Lord's work, and as an expression of our love for him, then I believe the world would sit up and take notice of what we have to say. What was it that Malachi began in the words we read earlier? The Lord does not change. Demands the same of people yesterday as of today and of tomorrow. And Malachi said, ever since the time of your forefathers, you've turned away from my decrees. Return to me and I will return to you. And I believe with all my heart that one of the reasons the Church of Christ in the West is so anemic and weak is because the last part of us to be converted is our wallets. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to heed your word this morning. And it seems that if we are to read Malachi correctly, that There's a sense of spiritual renewal and revival that is tied up with obedience to you and obedience in this area of tithing. So help us, Lord, whether we earn very little or a great deal, to recognize that the amount of what we have is not the issue, but the attitude of our hearts towards it. And grant that you would teach us and guide us and lead us to be people known for their generosity to you and to the work of your kingdom. And these things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.